The Navy wants to make life easier for small businesses. Officials have a list of ways small businesses can make themselves stand out in trying to win contracts. For how the Navy encourages help from small business, Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric spoke with the Navy's acting chief technology officer, Justin Finelli. The Atlantic Council uh, came out with an interim report in April, and they said, hey, we think the DOD can be better on innovation adoption, and we agree. For instance, PEO Digital was doing uh, zero SIBRs. I think PEO MLB may have been doing zero or one SIBRs, and we leaned really hard into that. And so um, uh, that's one place where we're just getting more creative. We're looking at more mechanisms. We have something that's called an Antics, A-N-T-X, so that we can do commercial solution offerings. Uh, We have uh, both phase one and phase twos going, and we've gotten better at those. The learning curve and the people from these either small businesses or non-traditionals who are leaning in, like we've streamlined that process. And one of the ways that we're doing that is we're saying, hey, these are the objective, quantitative, show us where we were and how you'll improve us. That puts a little bit more ownership on them to deliver something, but it also puts a little bit more focus on how good are they at the job, not how good are they at the interview. And so, uh, like we said, the companies and the organizations uh, and the partnerships have helped with that. Um, In general, we're also, I think, attracting even more talent than we were before. And so this helps from a dual-use case perspective. We're getting some commercial folks in. I met last night with the author of a book that's coming out called Valley Meets Mission. Uh, He was a venture capitalist, and now he's out teaching at Stanford. I teach at Georgetown, and we were talking about how we can collaborate to bring more people who would normally work in Silicon Valley into the government or mix those partnerships. This is a really exciting time to streamline talking about the work and then spending more time on the work so that we can get those uh, measurable outcomes up every month, every quarter, every day. What's the biggest challenge to accomplishing that? I'd say the biggest challenge is how bad we want it. Uh, we want to make this way better. And, uh, and so um, one of the ways that we focused our energy is prioritizing based on biggest outcomes. I, I'd say uh, impatience is the biggest challenge because we are really eager to get after this. And we know some things take time, but if you assume that it's going to take a lot of time, it will. Um, And so uh, picking winners and making sure that uh, they're as uh, aggressive and hungry as possible and that we're unleashing them uh, and that they produce that through the follow through phase is the biggest thing. Most of the impediments, the the, um, senior leadership support uh, has been the best I've seen it in 25 years. Uh, The alignment is uh, pretty good. And I think the more wins we have, the better the alignment will be. Uh, Ultimately, one thing that's coming up is Operation Cattle Drive has been around for a a few years, and uh, and we want to really up the ante on that cattle drive piece. And I believe Enterprise Services um, is uh, kind of the yin-yang with cattle drive. So if we get after both of those, uh, then we have uh, potentially uh, a a clearer path to serving our warfighter better. How are you working with DIU? Are you using OTAs or other authorities? Yeah, uh, that and more. So um, the Valley of Death uh, predates all of us. Uh, from a technology adoption, innovation adoption perspective. And so um, it's something that we've really had our eyes on because we think that it can help mission outcomes more than ever. And DIU was one that we reached out to uh, as a partner uh, probably about 16 months ago. The PEO previously hadn't done a ton of work with them. And they've been outstanding in terms of uh, awarding OTAs, cataloging items for us, and then just general tech scouting. Uh, during the panel, I, uh, I got off stage and had a text message from one of our uh, 
DIU LNOs, and he said, hey, I have something that will absolutely solve one of the problems we've discussed previously. So they are hungry, uh, and they are uh, an amazing partner, and we're looking to take them and other R&E partners and other ecosystem partners from uh, O&R and venture-backed companies and just non-traditionals as well as our traditionals to get things moving in the very right direction. Can you expand upon that a little bit more? What are things are you looking to expand upon? IT for IT's sake is not only not interesting, but it underserves our warfighters and that there is an opportunity to improve their lives and put more time on what they signed up for in terms of duty. So a challenge coin that said, no comms, no bombs. In general, the connectivity is the air we breathe. And so if we can make that seamless and frictionless and dependable, we want to do that. So what types of mission outcomes? Well, the five that we look at most are user time lost. And so is there something that is reducing friction, heartache, uh, dependability? Two is operational resilience. And so that is everything cyber. And then can we fight hurt? Can we take a punch? Three is net promoter score. So realize that we're not someone who's hawking software, but we do care about our customer experience a lot. And so we worked with the White House and they said, hey, this is a novel way to measure whether someone's really excited about something or not in the government. And so we absolutely have customers. They're amongst the best possible customers in the world because they're warfighters and civilians who are working to serve us and they're sacrificing us for, for us every day and we want to sacrifice for them. Next one is the cost per user. We don't want to drive that to the bottom basement, but we want the cost per user to be in a tolerable range. We've done industry benchmarks to make sure that we're competitive and affordable. And, and we do want to get some of the, the efficiencies out to other services and other features and other things that the Department of Navy really needs to do. And the last one is adaptability. How do we make sure that we're building platforms and not just spoke things so we can make quick changes? Everyone cares when we have an adaptive problem like there was in Ukraine, whether it'll take two minutes or two months to make that change. And so if we can build that in the back end, and we are working with our partners that we were talking about earlier, as well as our existing partners to change the way that we do that. We've already gotten some wins there this year, and we want a landslide of wins in the next 12 months. What are some of the wins that you would be looking for? Or can you provide an example of one that you've had this year? Uh, some of them are beta because simplicity scales. And so we've had a group of volunteers who said, hey, let's do this differently. And we have flow three activities that allows our users to get directly into the cloud or perform their job functions with about 10% of the hops that it used to. We have some MFA, multi-factor authentication activities that help some of our users who don't have a CAC or work in a SCIF, and it saves them 10 steps a day. We have some back-end things that are potentially a, a little bit less exciting to the lay person, but they just know that their systems work better. And so one of the ways that we're working there is a zero trust is really important, but it can be abstract. The zero trust is exciting for us because we are inheriting, so Naval Identity Services, we are inheriting um, so many of those activities so that, in general, people don't have to build their own. That's one example of an enterprise service where we can use what's been built once, many times, as opposed to everyone building themselves. 
the more enterprise services we have, the more it's going to be downhill running uh, in the best way for uh, we can focus on what's important to this group and not everyone has to bring their own stack. And then we're going to see, and we have seen already, uh, users who are more excited, less frustrated about uh, both their IT, but how they work. Information is uh, the, uh, the currency of the day. I also wanted to ask if you could provide a quick update on the UX pilot programs. The theme that we're talking about here are there are two, right? Um, so there's the last mile theme, uh, which is a, a small portfolio of pilots uh, for connectivity, and then there's the um, uh, fix my computer, uh, which is a small uh, portfolio of um, pilots for. Um, out of PEO Digital, uh, for streamlining those things. So uh, to get into the the weeds for a second, uh, we have a a 15-minute scrum uh, casting call uh, every night where we're talking about here's the update of status, uh, here are the impediments we can remove. So uh, the the kind of day in and day out is they're making progress every 24 hours. Um, The specifics, like on a quick uh, discussion is um, we are upping the numbers for each of those things. So, uh, like uh, probably a little bit more than linearly, uh, the uh, the Nautilus virtual desktop NVD. Uh, the last time we talked, I think we were at thirty one thousand. We're at forty two thousand users now. So that's upping the ante, pushing that to securing the defense industrial base and having more of our users adopt that, as well as getting adoption up in the government. We see that the boot time on that is minuscule, under twenty seconds. Uh, that's a way where the previous benchmark was, like as Jared reported, was uh, 10 minutes. Like we want that to get out to more people. So we there are cases where it's a scaling thing. The technology piece has been solved, but where can we scale that on the basis? Uh, this is an interesting partnership. We have uh, USD R&E, so under uh, Honorable Shoe, uh, where we've done some experiments, technical experiments, and now we're trying to apply those to programs of record and sites who are doing actual things. So we have smart warehouses in Albany, Georgia, and Coronado, California, and we're saying um, how much better, uh, not is the technology, but is the performance of that warehouse when we implement these. And so that's something that for 5G specifically, or for some of our proliferated low earth orbit activities, what is the difference in performance and cost of these? And so as we've done those pilots, we've both figured out, hey, this is much better, or this is cheaper, or do you believe how fast PLEO is? We knew that free space was faster, but the the fact that they're delivering that from a commercial off-the-shelf perspective is incredible, and that, that there are some cost implications of that. But I'd say from a wins perspective, uh, separate from the technology proof, uh, we have users who are spending more time on mission every day, and we have about 15 ways to show that that number is incrementing. Uh, at different levels, um, and uh, and that's what we care about most. Justin Finelli, the acting chief technology officer for the Navy Department and the technical director of Program Executive Office Digital, speaking with Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. Check out Kirsten's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. 
what's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. 
and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things 
through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.